Kan vi få at give os ideer og arbejdsmæssigt og have til at være i Jesus' navn. Amen. It's a real delight to be with you this morning, uh, both for baptism and confirmations, uh, and also to continue the sermon series in the book of John. Uh, over the last two sermons, you've been looking at the miracle in John 6, the feeding of the 5,000 that occurred at the Sea of Galilee, and you've seen how Jesus used that feeding miracle to point to the fact that he is the source of spiritual nourishment. He is the only source where we can really find food for our souls, that we have to come to him and feed on him. And at the end of John 6, if you were here last week, you've seen how that really divided the followers of Jesus. Many of the so-called disciples of Jesus found that teaching too hard and were leaving him. Uh, that kind of sets the background for our passage today from John chapter 7. In John chapter 7, we see various struggling to work out who Jesus is and how they should respond to him. Is he the prophet who comes to bring teaching from God, or is he leading the people of Australia, leading them to, to break God's law? Is he the Christ, the Messiah, or is he some imposter? Is he the source of living water, or is what he offers nothing more than a mirage? Now, uh, I want our, our, our five uh, confirmees to be thinking carefully about that. In fact, I know they've already worked out the answer to those questions. They're going to stand up and declare for you who they think Jesus is. Um, but this is not just a challenge for them, I guess it's a challenge for all of us. Um, what is our response to Jesus? Uh, will we listen to him because he is the prophet? Will we, will we follow him because he is the Messiah? Will we, will we receive from him? John 7 is a transition in the book of John. Up to this point in the Gospel, most of Jesus' ministry had been centered in and around Galilee, which is in the north of the country, with occasional visits to Jerusalem to attend the Jewish feasts there. Jesus has been to Jerusalem at least twice before in John's Gospel, but we're kind of up and back a trip to Jerusalem. The region of Galilee was considered a provincial background by the leaders in Jerusalem. Did you, did you get that sense of contempt? Did you hear that in the region of John? Who could have ever come to, to, from Galilee? You go and check it out. No, no one, and there's never been a, a prophet from Galilee. In John 7, however, Jesus again goes up to Jerusalem again for one of the religious festivals there, this time the Feast of Tabernacles, uh, which occurs around September each year. But the difference this time is that Jesus is not really going to return and do a whole lot of ministry in Galilee from this point on. From this point on, he's going to be settled in Judea in the south, in Jerusalem and in Bethany. Uh, this visit to Jerusalem in September sets in train the events that lead to the crucifixion of Jesus within six months. So I know we're only in the first third of the book of John, but we're actually on the trajectory to the cross as a result of for this feast at this point in time. The last time Jesus had been in Jerusalem, uh, you read about it in John chapter 5, and at that time he had outraged the religious leaders because he had healed a man on the Sabbath. In 
John 5 verse 18, we read, for this reason, they tried all the more to kill him, not only because he was breaking the Sabbath, but even more because he was calling God his own father. The opening verse of John 7 explains why Jesus had been ministering in Galilee since, and have a look at the Bible moment, we encourage you to have a moment, it's a long passage, hopefully I'll be able to kind of navigate through it, if you have your Bibles. John 7 verse 1, Jesus did not want to go about in Judea, because the Jewish leaders there were looking for a way to kill him. But this is all the background of John chapter 7, it's a big deal for Jesus to eventually go up to Jerusalem again. The brothers of Jesus encourage him to go up to the feast, uh, in uh, the Feast of Tabernacles in Jerusalem, Telling him, show yourself to the world. The Feast of Tabernacles was one of three annual festivals that all Jews were expected to go to Jerusalem to, to celebrate. There was some other festivals as well, but there were three big ones that people were meant to go up every year. And uh, Jews from across the country and beyond would, uh, would come in pilgrimage to Jerusalem every year to pray the big long feast. Perhaps the brothers of Jesus were aware that many of the disciples had deserted him recently and thought that this was a good opportunity to re-establish his supporter base. John 5 tells us, sorry, John verse 5, chapter 7 verse 5 tells us that his own brothers did not believe in him. Now, that can't mean that they didn't believe that he had some special powers as a miracle worker, given that the very thing they want Jesus to do is go and display his party tricks in Jerusalem. They, they want him to become a public figure, verse 4. Their problem is that they're looking for the wrong kind of Messiah. They're, they're looking for a publicly acclaimed, miracle working, popular Messiah, not the kind of Messiah that Jesus has actually come to be. And that's kind of the theme that's running right through this, this, this chapter of John 7. Is who exactly had Jesus come to be? What is his purpose? Jesus tells his brothers that he will not go up to Jerusalem because, verse 6, my time is not yet here. Jesus knows the opposition that he will face in, verse, uh, in Jerusalem, verse 7. The world hates me because I testify that its works are evil. And this is not just Jesus being paranoid. This is, in fact, what had happened the last time he was there, and indeed it is what happens as a result of this vision, of this visit. It's not just that Jesus is avoiding confrontation, though. It is, verse 8, that my time has not fully come. That is, Jesus understands that his father has a very particular plan and timetable, and he is working to that plan. If he goes up to Jerusalem openly, show himself as the brothers want, that's not the plan. Verse 10, however, after his brothers had left the festival, he went up also, not publicly, but in secret. So the opposite of what his brothers wanted him to do. When Jesus arrives in Jerusalem, he doesn't stay completely under the radar. Halfway through the festival, Jesus begins to teach in the temple. And then on the last day of the he stands up and he makes a loud proclamation about being the source of living water. There are three stacked strands which are woven together in this middle section of John 7. 
which feature one aspect of the identity of Jesus. For a minute, there is no put each one of those three in turn, which means I am going to pick some little bits uh, from, from across the chapter to try and draw those strands out for these two difference. The first strand, uh, which is the beginning of the beginning, focuses on the teaching of Jesus. Is he a prophet sent from God, or is he leading the people astray? Jesus' dialogue with the religious leaders in verses 16 to 24 picks up the debate where it had been left off in John chapter 5, after Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. Uh, Jesus makes a fairly provocative uh, string of claims about the source of his teaching in verses 16 to 18. He says, my teaching is not my own, it comes from the one who sent me. Verse 17, my teaching comes from God. Verse 18, uh, Jesus is a man of truth who seeks the glory of of the one who sent him. The particular teaching in dispute is whether it was right for Jesus to have healed on the Sabbath. Uh, remember, this had happened like six months earlier when Jesus went up to another festival. We're not quite sure when the festival was in John 5, but it would have at least been some months beforehand. But the memory of that is still so, so strong that the moment Jesus came back, he's still challenging him about whether he had the right to. In verses 22 and 23, Jesus uses their own practice in relation to circumcision to demonstrate that he was right to do what he had done. The law of Moses required that no work be done on the Sabbath. The law of Moses also required that infant boys be circumcised on the eighth day. But what if the eighth day fell on the Sabbath? Well, the Jewish authorities circumcised the child on the Sabbath because they recognised that there was a higher purpose to the circumcision law that overrode the Sabbath law. And Jesus' point is that his healing is in the same category. What he was doing was making people whole, actually fulfilling the purpose of the Sabbath. Now, in this chapter, there are two distinct responses to this question about whether Jesus Remember, Jesus is claiming that he is a teacher who has come from God, sent from God, to be a man of truth. Some people say, verse 40, yeah, surely this man is the prophet. Now, you notice they say the prophet, not just a prophet. That's because back in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, Moses had promised, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. From among your own brothers. You must listen to him. And ever since the time of Moses, they've been waiting for a prophet like Moses, or just the, the prophet like Moses. And the crowd are saying, We think Jesus is the God. That this is another great one like Moses, speaking the very words of God to us. And therefore, Deuteronomy 1815, we should listen to him. At the other extreme, you have the response of the religious leaders, uh, which we get to finally toward the end of the chapter in verses 45 and 52. Um, they're frustrated with the temple guards because they've sent the temple guards out to, to arrest Jesus, and the temple guards have come back and they're probably impressed by the teaching of Jesus. And they say to them, You mean that we have deceived you also? In, in the next verse, verse 39, they rejected the assessment of the crowds. This mob knows nothing about the law, there's a curse on them. And then they make 
as we read this, we should be asking ourselves the same question. What is my assessment of the teaching of Jesus? As I said, Jesus is made a pretty provocative claim. I've come from God, I'm teaching the truth from God. You should listen to me. Is he the prophet that Moses promised? Is he the man of truth who comes from God? If he is, then will I listen to him, accept his teaching and the very word of God to me? That's the first identity question that's waiting through this chapter. But there's a second one. Is Jesus the Messiah, the Christ, or not? In this chapter, the crowds pose three tests for the Messiah, although as we'll see, the first and the third test are a little curious in intention. The first test is in verse 27. The crowd says, when the Messiah comes, no one will know where he is from. And they think that Jesus fails the test because they know where he's from. He's from Galilee, or at least they think they know where he's from. Uh, just park that for, for a moment, because I want to come back to that idea when we look at the third test. Uh, the second test is in verse 31, that the Messiah will perform miraculous signs. The crowd asks the rhetorical question, when the Messiah comes, will he perform more signs than this man? And then, of course, the implied answer is no. That the, the miraculous signs demonstrate that Jesus is the Messiah. Though, a bit like when we're looking at Jesus' brothers, we should be asking the question, what kind of Messiah are they looking for if, if the sign of the Messiah is these miraculous signs? Now, the third text, like the first text, is about the origins of the Messiah. Uh, the text is there in verses 41 and 42. Others ask, how can the Messiah come from Galilee? Scripture says that the Messiah will come from David's descendants and be from Bethlehem. Now, obviously, there's a bit of tension with the first test. The first test was that no one knows where he comes from, and Jesus failed that because we know where he comes from. The third test is we know where the Messiah comes from. It's Bethlehem, and Jesus isn't from there. Although, in the test, Jesus apparently you see that John is being doubly ironic here. Uh, firstly, uh, because we're reading the crowds expressing their confidence that Jesus can't be the Messiah because he doesn't come from Bethlehem, which of course the first reader of John's Gospel is already know is not true. Jesus does in fact come from Bethlehem because that's where he was born. He was from the house and line of David as promised. But there's a second layer to John's irony as well, because we see the crowd being so confident that they know where Jesus has come from, they know about the origin of Jesus, but they're actually completely oblivious to where Jesus has really come from and what Jesus is claiming about himself. Jesus is claiming that he has been sent from heaven to do the one of the will who sent him. Do you see there in verse 29? Jesus says, I am from him, talking about from, from the heavenly father, and he has sent me. That, that's where he's from. Actually, four more times in this passage, verse 16, verse 18, verse 28, verse 33, all the way through, Jesus is pointing to the fact that he is uh, the, the one who has been sent. The heavenly father has sent him from heaven to come to earth. You see, ultimately, the Messiah comes not from Galilee, nor even from Bethlehem. And it's the failure of the crowd to recognize this that means that they ultimately fail to respond rightly to Jesus. 
the logical inconsistency in the incoherence of the three tests put by the crowds to determine whether or not Jesus is the Messiah points to the fact that they're actually asking the wrong questions, aren't they? It's a bit like Jesus and others. They're looking for the wrong kind of Messiah. The question that John 7 is posing to us is, what kind of a Messiah are we looking for? Uh, when our, our, our fine guys stand for us and say, I turn to Christ, Christ is just another word for the Messiah. What, what exactly do they mean? Do, what is the, the, the Christ, the Messiah, that they are following? What we're seeing and have seen so far in John's Gospel and he continues to see is that the Messiah that God is sending is a king who comes to die to save his people. Yes, a descendant of David who's come from Bethlehem, all of those things to satisfy the promises of the Old Testament, but ultimately he did not come as a miracle worker, public figure of the gospel. He's come as a suffering Messiah. Is that what Jesus is to you, guys? Is that what Jesus is to the rest of us? A suffering The third and final identity question Terms on Jesus' claim about living water. Before we get to Jesus' words in verses 37 and 38, it might be helpful if I give just a little bit of background from the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, living water is used metaphorically, both to describe our problem as human beings and the solution to the problem. The problem is described in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13 where the Lord declares, my people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, sorry, dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. This is what we do as human beings. God is life in himself, but we turn our backs on God and we try and find life in our own pursuits, but all we are doing is digging empty systems and dry wells. It's what the Bible calls sin. It's rejecting God and replacing God. They're really two sides of the same coin. Replacing God with the works of our hands, which of course is a, is a counterfeit. It's a non it's a non-thing. we in, in Jeremiah's terms, we've rejected living water and we're drinking out of dry wells. That's our problem we've actually cut ourselves off from the source of living water. That's the problem side of it, but the Old Testament also uses the, the, that metaphor to talk about uh, a way back to the living water. In Isaiah chapter 12, the Lord promises, with joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Those, you, you, there's a way back to the source of living water. Yes, you've turned your back on, on this, but, but I'm going to open up a way for it. And indeed, the Lord offers Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat, come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. So, in the Old Testament, there is this idea that God is going to turn it all around and there is a way back for his people to begin to have access to the living waters. And then, with those verses in mind, now listen to what Jesus says in verses 37 and 38. Let anyone who is thirsty come to me. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within him. And then the Apostle John adds an explanatory comment in verse 
is in it the Spirit, with those who have believed in him were made into the Spirit. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given, since Jesus had not been, had not yet been glorified. The living water that Jesus promises here is being born again by the Holy Spirit. The source of the living water that we have cut ourselves off from by turning our back on God, Jesus is saying, Come to me and you will receive this. That the only way back to the source of living water is to believe in it, It's an offer which is anticipating something that's yet to come because it's only after the death and resurrection of Jesus that Jesus can pour his spirit into our hearts to make that living water, his own spirit, well up from within. So in a sense, what he's offering now is in anticipation of what's about to happen when he goes to the cross. The, the medical, metaphorical connection between water and spirit is it, just like we saw right back at the beginning of the gospel, back in John chapter 3. Remember when Jesus talked about being born again, he said being born of water and the spirit. Uh, God, uh, if you use the metaphors of the Old Testament from, from uh, Ezekiel 36, God washes away the sin of our rebellion, of our rejection of him, of our inconsistency of our death, washes us clean and pours his spirit into us. It's a happy coincidence that we have a baptism and confirmation in our service today. In baptism, the inward baptism of the spirit is symbolised by an outward baptism in water. It's the same metaphor here in John 7. This water, living water, Spirit of God Himself dwelling up within. Now, that third identity issue is perhaps the most provocative of all. Who is Jesus? He is the source of living water. Why is that provocative? Because the Old Testament says that the Lord God is the source of living water. That's Jeremiah 2 13. So, this is Jesus claiming to be God Himself. Provocative enough to claim to be the prophet and the Messiah, but now he's actually claiming to be the source of living water himself, God himself. I want to finish by posing the question how do we answer those identity questions about Jesus for ourselves? To put it pointedly, is he the prophet for you, the one to whom? Is he your Messiah, your Saviour and King? And is he your source of living water who has poured his spirit into your heart? John 7 asks you the question, who is Jesus to you? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for the way that it shows us 